And let me ask you, encourage you to take a Bible and turn with me, if you would, to Peter's first epistle and the fifth chapter of Peter's first epistle. You may recall that some weeks ago I began to look at this passage and uh, brought a couple of sermons on the dangers of spiritual pride. And I really want to come back and look at what I would regard as the positive side of that in this passage uh, concerning the grace of humility and how we're encouraged by Peter uh, to pursue that particular grace. And so let me encourage you to follow in your Bibles as I read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Hear the word of the true and living God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, that is, the presbyters, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers. And the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If you would, pray with me and for me as I lead us to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, I bow before you, Father, in the consciousness that if we are to profit from this your word, we must be utterly dependent upon the grace of of your Holy Spirit, we plead with you that he may come upon us all in copious measures. Enable us, O God, to understand your word and grant, O Father, that it might become part and parcel of our being as we seek in evangelical obedience to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to see this grace as you see it, and therefore clothe ourselves with it, we plead through the mercies of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, if you were here uh, for those sermons we looked at or considered regarding the dangers of spiritual pride, I would like for us to move on this evening uh, and notice that it's interesting that the Apostle Paul found it necessary in the third verse of Romans chapter 12 to make an allusion to his own particular office as an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ. And he did so in this language, for I say to you, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, and there while making reference to his own authority as an apostle, he makes it abundantly clear that he is addressing every member of the church of Jesus Christ. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. And when we pause to consider for a moment the different offices, the different measures of graces and gifts that God bestows upon the various members of the church of Jesus Christ, What is his particular consideration there, which he in turn urges upon the members of the church 
of Jesus Christ. What is the principal virtue? What is the great grace which must characterize the people of God and which they must exercise when they're thinking of the different functions of members and of different offices in the church of Jesus Christ? What virtue, what grace should mark, should characterize their mindset? And the Apostle Paul there answers that question in this manner. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, here it is, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. No man, no woman should think of himself, herself more highly than he or she ought to think. Everyone must possess and exercise the grace of humility. You see, there is always the danger that when a particular person is endowed and equipped by God with particular and peculiar gifts, that he or she runs the risk of becoming so self-absorbed with the gifts that they possess as to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. Therefore, the Apostle Paul in Romans does not simply commend to them the grace of humility, but commends it by way of apostolic injunction to be the default operating mindset of every believer in the church of Jesus Christ. And though pride thus described, thinking more highly of oneself than one ought to think, is a danger to which every believer in the church of Jesus Christ is susceptible and vulnerable, I think it is especially true of those of us who have been gifted to preach as ministers of the gospel. And throughout the years in pastoring and preaching, it has been my own prayer that God would be pleased to protect me from the risk of being the stranger to this grace which I want to address this evening and, Lord willing, next Lord's Day evening. In his book, Lectures to My, Spirit, to my Students, Charles Spurgeon, in his customary but so perceptive way, stated, Better to abolish pulpits than to fill them with men who have no experimental knowledge of what they teach. Therefore, I pray not only that I may not be a stranger to the grace of humility, but that God would likewise be pleased to grant me in increasing measures, copious measures, this grace. And some weeks ago, as I mentioned, I addressed uh, the subject of the danger of spiritual pride from 1 Peter 5. And here in 1 Peter 5, once again, we find the organizing principle for the topic I want to address this evening and next Lord's Day evening. Here, Peter, he has been speaking to pastors, to elders, to presbyters in the previous verses preceding our text. And now he's shifting the attention of his readers to Christian people, to Christian congregants. 
Notice again, he says, verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, Last time I mentioned that that word resist is a, it is a sobering word. It is a troubling word. In the original it means to rise up in one's strength against. To set oneself in battle array against. Peter is saying that God stands and arises in his strength to oppose the proud. And when we contemplate the proud, oftentimes our minds are directed to the people of the world. And we're happy for God to fight against the people out there. But Peter isn't writing to the people out there. He's writing to us and here is the people of God. And he says God will resist the proud within the context of his church. He will fight against the proud. He will resist the proud. Now, you may recall in those previous sermons on the subject of spiritual pride, I sought to address it by means of three questions. I only asked and answered the first. The first question was, what are the identifying marks, the telltale signs of spiritual pride? Now, two questions remain. What are the essential or the necessary qualities or characteristics of true humility And then, what are the means best suited for the cultivating of true humility? And I want to answer A of the first question tonight. There's an A and a B to to that second question. So I want to look first of all then at this evening at what are the essential qualities? What are the characteristics of true humility? And so I'm going to to talk about first of all the distinct advantages that belong to true humility under A of that answer, and I'll pick up B next Lord's Day evening. So what are these distinct advantages that belong to true humility? And we're concerned to remind ourselves here of some of the compelling reasons why we ought to pursue the grace of humility and to view it as utterly indispensable to us as Christians, and it's so deserving of our continued efforts uh, to acquire this grace in increasing measures. And so I'm going to give you several reasons. First of all, humility is what we might describe as a magnet grace. Humility is a magnet grace. Surely humility itself is a grace. It's not something that we can simply muster in the final or in the ultimate sense on our own. It is something which the Spirit of God works within us. Humility is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying power in our lives. It's one of the first, it's one of the best, indeed, it is one of the most compelling evidences that the Spirit of God is at work in us applying the saving benefits of Christ's death and resurrection to our souls and to our lives. The cross of Jesus Christ is the display 
of God's power in confounding the wisdom of men. The pride of human wisdom, the pride of human strength, these are contrasted to the cross to the end that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now because this is the design of the cross, the Holy Spirit in applying the benefits of the cross to elect sinners humbles them. He lays them low in the dust. As old Augustine said, humility and spiritual progress go together. If humility is the foundation and the starting point, he says it is also the means and guarantee of progress in the Christian life. And yet humility is a gracious fruit of the Spirit's work. And humility is also a virtue which we're responsible, you and I, to cultivate more and more. We're to sense some responsibility to be humble and to be more humble and yet more humble. In Matthew 18 and verses 2 through 4, you may remember the scene. It's a very moving scene in the recorded life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he calls a little child to him and sets him down there in the midst of his disciples. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you become converted, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then we have that awful, and I mean awful in the sense of awe-inspiring scene in the upper room recorded in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 14 and following, as Christ washed the feet of his own disciples. And then he says to them, verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That was a call to humility, greater humility. In Colossians 3 and verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. And what are those mercies with which we are to clothe ourselves? Kindness, humility, meekness. Long-suffering. This is your calling. Put on these graces, these virtues. Then James 4 in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. First Peter 5 and verse 6 again. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So you see, we're not simply to wait, you and I, for humility to suddenly appear in our lives. We're not to wait for some kind of mystical zapping of the spirit, as it were, whereby we're introduced to higher levels of humility. We are to pursue it according to Holy Scripture. We are aggressively and energetically to pursue humility. 
And part of that incentive which the Bible holds up to motivate us in that pursuit is this. That with more humility, with greater measures of humility, come many other blessings in its aftermath. James 4 and verse 6, James said, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. And there, James, when he says God resists the proud, is the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5 for God standing in battle array against the proud. So it's grace that attracts more grace. That's why humility is a magnet, grace. Well, the key to more grace is humility. And one of the promises in that regard that we find in Isaiah, the 57th chapter and verse 15, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And that's what all of us need, is it not? More than anything else, we need as Christians than the enjoyment of God's special fellowship and presence. And that enormous comfort and privilege is God's pledge to whom? It's his pledge to the humble. It is to the humble that he promises that. In his work, Heaven on Earth, the the Puritan Thomas Brooks, he observed that Humility, the same thing, is a grace and a vessel to receive grace. It's a magnet grace. I rather think it would make a significant difference in our works, both in private and public, if we always enjoyed, mind you, some measure, some conspicuous measure of God's special presence with us, something that we could sense and know, some sensible help, from God. Well, that alone, dear people, makes humility worthy of our utmost endeavor. God promises to dwell in a peculiar way with the humble and with the contrite. The first advantage then of humility is that it brings or draws into its orbit other and greater blessings from God, the chief of which is God's own special presence. Then secondly, and closely connected to what has been said, the second advantage of humility is that humility results in exalted usefulness. Humility results in exalted usefulness. The most frequent named benefit of humility in the Bible is what? What's the most frequent named benefit in the Bible of humility? Well, again and again, it's exaltation. You find that the two are bound together in Holy Scripture. I'll show you. Job 5 and verse 11. We're about to study that in Sunday school next Sunday. Let me give a pitch for that. In Job 5 and verse 11, we read, He sets on high those who are lowly. Psalm 147, 6. The Lord lifts up who? The humble. 
Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is what? Humility. Matthew 20, verses 26 through 27. Yet it shall not be, the Lord Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him what? Let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. In Matthew 23 and verse 12, that's the chapter where Jesus really takes the Pharisees to task. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James, in his own epistle, chapter 1, verse 9, said, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Again, in chapter 4, and verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Again, Peter, our own text Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. To what end? For what purpose? That he may exalt you in due time. Now, the most frequently promised benefit, then, of humility is exaltation. But listen very carefully. It seems that we must be careful as we contemplate exaltation. We have to be careful in embracing the motto motto that the way up is down. We must be careful lest we regard humility as but the tool for obtaining what pride desires. Pride is not beyond saying this. Oh, that's how you get it? What we want is exaltation? So that's how you get it? Yes, we'll be humble so that we may gain what pride wants. It doesn't work like that. God doesn't share his glory with anyone, not even the humble. That no flesh should glory in his presence, not even humble flesh. Now, perhaps it's safest to envision the promised exaltation here as an increased or enlarged dimensions of usefulness in our appointed service to God. I think that's the promise that's being underscored in all of those passages, that the humble will be blessed and used of God more and more, that is in greater degrees and more powerfully than they could have ever been used in their appointed places of service without humility. That's how the Apostle Paul interpreted the benefit, did he not, of the humility? humiliation that God forced upon him with respect to the thorn in his flesh. He said, even though he did quarrel and complain and protest against it and drew back because it was painful, but he learned that that thorn God had given him and the humbling effects of that thorn upon him became the cause of greater usefulness in the service of God. And so he said, Therefore most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, I'm a better preacher because of this humbling thorn that God has given me. 
Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And that indeed, dear people, is the only exaltation that a humble heart really desires. To be more useful. To have more and more of the benediction of Christ abiding upon our efforts so that more and more attention will be drawn to him so that his fame would increase so that more and more worshipers will be gathered to him to praise and to love him. And so if it is our great aim to be useful in the service of Christ, to spread the fame of Christ, to be vehicles, channels by which more grace comes to the people of Christ and the church of Christ. If that is our aim, then humility must become an absolute pursuit, not just for one or two of the members of Christ's church, but of all of the members of Christ's church. I think again of that sermon of Dr. Ortland. You'll remember I read to you some weeks ago, and it has helped me greatly when he said, I used to think that I was a half-decent preacher with the potential of becoming a good preacher. And back in, he says, my seminary prof days, he said, I felt frustrated that I was not more widely recognized. Not anymore. He said, I've discovered just how mediocre I really am. Let me tell you something. That's a blessing of God. It's a blessing to discover just how mediocre I really am. That's a distinct blessing. He says, now if God's blessing attends my preaching at all, he says, I am amazed by that. Why? Because God's power is made perfect in my weakness. I think one of the major questions for all of us in deciding whether or not we'll pursue humility with all of our hearts is whether or not we as those who preach simply desire to preach fine sermons, to preach sermons that or theologically precise and accurate to win the admiration of perhaps those whom we regard as theologically astute and those who are just attuned to something that makes them feel good, or whether we desire to preach plain sermons that are blessed of God to the salvation of sinners and to the building up of the people of God. And the choice here is not whether or not we will work. That's not the choice. Preaching sermons, I assure you, to children are much more difficult than preaching sermons to theologues. It's not a matter of working less. But the choice is whether we aim at impressing people with our supposed skills, so to speak, or whether we'll aim at presenting the most simple and plain statement of divine truth that we possibly can to God's people, even if by such plain statements people come to think of us as merely ordinary men, mediocre and ordinary preachers. William Gowd, he made the statement, he's a Puritan, and when I read it, frankly, it sent a chill up my spine. And the quote is this, 
He said, remember, we do not mount the pulpit to say fine things or eloquent things. We have there to proclaim the good tidings of salvation to fallen men. To point out the way of eternal life. To exhort, to cheer and support the suffering sinner. These are the glorious topics upon which he says we are to enlarge. And will these permit the tricks of oratory or the studied beauties of eloquence? Shall truths and counsels like these be couched in terms which the poor and ignorant cannot comprehend? Let all eloquent preachers beware, lest they fill any man's ear with sounding words when they should be feeding his soul with the bread of everlasting life. Let them fear that instead of honoring God, they honor themselves. If any man ascend the pulpit with the intention of uttering a fine thing, he is committing a deadly sin. If our deepest desire is to be useful in God's kingdom, then we must treasure humility. We must pursue humility because God promises exalted usefulness only to the humble. Then the third distinct advantage of humility is that humility and those fruits which accompany it, those handmaidens that accompany the grace of humility, they make the best possible presentation of Christ to men. The best possible presentation of Christ to men. Humility and those fruits that accompany it. Meekness, patience, kindness, gentleness. They make the best possible presentation of Christ to men. Of course, we do not desire to draw undue attention attention to ourselves. We know that's wrong. And yet we do desire to draw attention to Christ as much as we possibly can. And to draw attention to Christ, not simply with what we preach, but in how we preach what we preach. And to draw attention to Christ in how we interact with people when we're out of the pulpit and not preaching. I think it's interesting that few qualities are so useful to impress men with the beauty and excellence of Christ as genuine humility and all of the friendly graces that accompany it. We must never, we must never be like Christ unless we have greater measures of humility, right? We can't be like him unless we do. Shedd said it's impossible for God to be humble. He said it's also impossible for God to be proud. But God the Son coming in the participation of our flesh and taking upon himself the accomplishment of our redemption, he humbled himself. Paul says in Philippians he humbled himself in order to become 
all that the Father required of him to become for us in order to become all that we need for him to become in order that we in turn might be saved and in order to become all that we should be so that we could learn from him what we ought to be and by God's grace will be. The Son of God veiled his glory and humbled himself and took upon him, Paul says, the form of a servant. And he walked in and out among men, not as one who was to be served, but as one who served. Yet I am among you, he said, as a servant, as the one who serves. We must be servants. And he demonstrated this in his washing of the disciples' feet and saying, What I have done, you do likewise. Now what could be greater than to be like Christ. What could be greater than to have the reputation, that man, that woman is a Christ-like man. That woman is a Christ-like woman. Sometimes it strikes me that this motif, this theme to be Christ-like is perhaps the most undefined motto of all Christian mottos. We need to be like Christ. Well, what does that mean? When you think about being Christ-like, What comes to your mind? Great staggering examples of authority? Careful, fastidious law-keeping? Impressive outward expressions of love for God? Oh, to be sure, all of those elements were present in the earthly sojourn of our Lord. But in thinking about being like Christ in a way that is definable in a way that immediately attracts people to Christ and says, I believe that's what, like, what Christ-like is, or that's the way he was in the days of his flesh. We should set our minds on something other than astounding displays of authority and fastidious law-keeping. We should set our minds upon the meekness and the lowliness, and the gentleness of Christ. After all, is that not how he taught us to think? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am what? I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dear people, think about it. Why was it? That tax-collecting sinners and harlot sinners and common ordinary sinners felt safe to come into contact with the Son of God. What was it that made them feel safe to come into the presence of Jesus Christ? What was it? What made the scribes and the Pharisees feel safe to oppose him, to object to him, and ultimately to crucify him? Where did they ever get the idea that Christ was safe? It was because he was so lowly and he was so gentle. His enemies didn't feel threatened and his friends did not feel threatened. Jonathan Edwards especially commends humility and its fruits 
to those preachers who would be most useful in times of revival. And in speaking about revival, Edwards recommended that in, in our preaching, we as ministers should be bold and non-sparing. That we be fearless in wielding the sword of the Spirit. But then Edwards recommended that out of the pulpit, in our personal, in our private dealings, that we be conspicuously marked by lowliness, by gentleness, by meekness of spirit and behavior. That we move in and out among people with a soft, sweet, winning air and deportment of ourselves. In other words, he says, we ought to be clothed with a garment of humility, as Peter said, so that some people, so that people are not all struck in our presence, that people are not afraid to come up to us and to be in our presence. Are you approachable? Or do you think that maybe people have a hard time approaching you because, right or wrong, they have some perceived notion that you're a little bit arrogant? It's a question that all of us ought to ask. Do people feel threatened by perhaps a perceived sense of arrogance? Well, they came to Christ because they didn't feel threatened by Christ. And if anyone had the right to be arrogant, it was the humble son of God. Now, very quickly as I close, and this will take just very briefly, the fourth advantage of humility, and I'm done. And we need this. I need this particularly. Humility provides the greatest freedom from stress to the soul. Humility provides the greatest freedom from the stress to the soul. And dear people, this is not something that I've learned. It's something that I am in process of learning. Would to God that by now I would have made far greater progress in it. But humility provides the greatest freedom from stress to the soul. Humility makes for inward calm amidst the storms of outward opposition. The old Puritan Thomas Brooks, he reasons, Who am I that I should not be despised? Who am I that I may not be reproached, abused, slighted, and neglected? Why should that surprise me? Who in the world do I think I am anyway? Brooks also said, that which breaks a proud man's heart will not so much as break a humble man's sleep. That shows me how far I've got to go. Well, dear people, I hope and pray that the observations of part A of this question of what are the distinct advantages that belong to true humility have been somewhat helpful and motivating, indeed, that having them set before you, that you will see and say, oh, yes, those characteristics, I need them, and I need to pursue them. I need these things so that we'll crave true humility and deeper, deeper measures 
of yearning for them. I've probably dwelt on this point longer than I should have, but I suppose that it's one of the greatest needs of my own soul. And when I I see something that's a great need for my soul, then it commits me to it. May God be pleased to, to bless us all with the pursuit of these graces and the help of God's Spirit to do so. Let us pray.